Hello, uh, this is the 37th in a series of podcasts produced by the British Society of Haematology that review the numerous guidelines produced by the Society. My name is Dr Simon Stern, I'm a consultant haematologist mainly based at Epsom and St Helier NHS Trust, but I'm also an honorary consultant at the Royal Marsden Hospital in Sutton. I've been a consultant haematologist for over 20 years and I have a special interest in multiple myeloma and MGUS. This particular podcast is being recorded over Zoom, so I do apologise if there are any dropouts as we go through, but I hope the recording quality is fine for you. This particular guideline is actually a good practice paper, and it's a good practice paper on the investigation and management of the monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, uh, which for obvious reasons from now onwards, I'm gonna call MGUS. Um, I do have quite a lot of experience in this field, having been an NHS consultant for over 20 years and also performing two myeloma clinics a week, one at the Royal Marsden and one at St. Helier Hospital. I'll be starting with a very brief introduction uh, about MGUS itself. Then I'll be moving on to the diagnosis of MGUS and best laboratory practice in what, in other words, what to do when you turn up a, a new patient with a paraprotein. The next section after that will be about risk stratification of newly diagnosed patients with MGUS. And finally, I'll be talking about the uh, management and the follow-up of MGUS patients. MGUS is defined as the combination of a paraprotein, monoclonal protein of less than 30 grams per litre, less than 10% clonal plasma cells in the bone marrow, and the absence of end organ damage that we see associated with either myeloma or lymphoproliferative malignancies. It's a common condition. Um, its prevalence is about 3% in the over 50 year olds, going up to 9 or 10% in patients over the age of 85. In terms of its clinical importance, this really centers on the risk associated with MGUS of progressing to either multiple myeloma or a lymphoproliferative malignancy. So for that reason, it's very much be considered as a pre-malignant condition. Also, over recent years, it's become apparent that MGUS is associated with various non-malignant comorbidities, so-called monoclonal gammopathy of clinical significance, or MGCS, and I will be alluding to these later in the talk. So I'll now discuss how we diagnose MGUS and what we do with the results when we turn up a patient with MGUS. So just to remind you, the monoclonal protein can be an intact immunoglobulin, or it can be a free light chain in either the serum or, or the urine, so-called light chain MGUS. And these uh, monoclonal proteins are detected by their electrophoretic mobility against a polyclonal background on the protein electrophoresis. The laboratory goes through several steps when a paraprotein is picked up. Uh, we measure the IgAG, the IgM and the IgA levels in addition to the uh, paraprotein. And on detection of the paraprotein, we also perform immune fixation to confirm the precise isotope of the pr protein. The paraprotein is quantified by densitometry, 
of the monoclonal peak and monoclonal free light chain assays can be quantified by measuring either the Bent-Jones protein in the urine, but now much more commonly uh, serum free light chain levels. This is a much more sensitive measure. When we pick up or discover a new paraprotein, it's quite likely that other blood tests have been requested by the clinician at the same time, but we feel it's very important that if they haven't been done, the following tests should be checked. Full blood count, urea and electrolytes with a serum creatinine, the EGFR, and a corrected serum calcium. So what should the laboratory do when a new paraprotein is detected? One of the problems the laboratory staff often face is that there are often very few clinical details on the request form. And in addition, it may well be the case that the healthcare professional who's requested the test is not familiar with the results that are going to be sent to them. And that is particularly the case these days with serum-free light chain levels. It should, of course, be remembered that we do see minor abnormalities in the serum-free light chain ratio in several conditions, such as renal disease, uh, inflammation, and infection. And this can cause quite a lot of confusion when uh, clinicians notice a disparity between the kappa and the lambda light chain levels that may have nothing to do with MGUS and may simply be a reflection of the acute illness the patient is suffering. So it's very clear that um, the laboratory staff must produce relevant and helpful uh, clinical comments rather than just reporting the bald results. And it's these comments that often trigger the timely referral of patients with, for example, high-risk MGUS or multiple myeloma. Useful thresholds to remember are a paraprotein level of more than 10 grams per litre and a free light chain ratio that's either less than 0.1 if there's a lambda excess or more than seven if there's a kappa excess. If both those thresholds are excluded, that gives a 98% sensitivity for the detection of multiple myeloma and excludes 95% cases of MGUS. So a patient, for example, with a paraprotein level of 12 grams per litre and a free light chain ratio of more than eight or nine would have a 98% chance of having myeloma and there'd only be a 5% chance of that patient having MGUS. If you put that another way, it's very unlikely for a patient to have myeloma if their paraprotein level is less than 10 grams per litre and their free light chain ratio is between 0.1 and 7. Fortunately, there are now a few diagnostic tools available to help, in particular, general practitioners uh, to deal with these results. And one of those is directly quoted in the uh, good practice paper that has produced by Myeloma UK. I think numerous GPs have already found that to be very, very helpful. We now move on to the second section of this podcast, which deals with risk stratification of newly diagnosed MGUS patients. We know from work done in the Mayo Clinic and elsewhere that the overall risk of transformation of a newly diagnosed MGUS patient is 1% per year. I should add at this point that patients with light chain MGUS have a significantly lower risk of transformation, probably 0.3% per year. However, for the ease of simplicity, we tend to group all MGUS patients together when we talk about their risk stratification and management. 
It shouldn't be forgotten that most patients diagnosed with MGUS tend to be towards the elderly age of the spectrum, and it's quite likely that they all have other comorbidities. As a result of those, they're quite likely to die from unrelated diseases. So this is one particular point of risk stratification in that it can direct resources and the degree of follow-up. For example, you want to follow up a younger patient with high-risk MGUS more intensively than an elderly patient with low-risk MGUS. There are several clinical and laboratory factors that predict for the progression of MGUS towards multiple myeloma or lymphoproliferative malignancies. However, the three most useful ones of these were put together by the Mayo Clinic in 2005. And the three parameters are the size of the paraprotein, whether it's greater or less than 15 grams per liter, the subtype of the paraprotein, whether it's IgG or non-IgG, and whether or not a patient has an abnormal serum-free light chain ratio. So just to recap, the high-risk factors would be a paraprotein of more than 15 grams per liter, a non-IgG paraprotein, and an abnormal serum-free light chain ratio. And depending how many of these risk factors that are present allows us to risk stratify patient from low risk to high risk with low intermediate and high intermediate in the middle. And looking at those uh, various groups, a low risk patient would have a 5% risk of progression over 20 years, whereas a high risk patient would have a 58% risk of progression after 20 years. A vast difference. There are some alternative risk stratification models, notably uh, some Spanish models that involve the patient having a bone marrow and then looking for an abnormal plasma cell phenotype. And there's also a Swedish model with an additional risk factor of immune paresis. However, these are not in widespread use, and we would particularly like to avoid performing a bone marrow on patients if at all possible. What is clear is that a risk stratification should be performed at the time of diagnosis, and this is a key recommendation in the good practice paper. So now I'm going to move on to the final section, which is dealing with the management and follow-up of MGUS patients. In terms of the investigations performed at diagnosis, all MGUS patients should have a full blood count biochemical profile performed. We should also dipstick their urine looking for protein and then perform a protein to creatinine ratio. We would of course already have performed a serum free light chain assay to determine the free light chain levels and the free light chain ratio. And finally, the patient should have their urine tested again for the presence of free light chains or Bentz-Jones protein. More difficult is deciding which patients should undergo imaging and a bone marrow examination. I think it's fair to say now that there's widespread agreement that these investigations can be deferred in low risk and low intermediate risk MGUS patients. That's very important because those groups comprise more than 50% of all MGUS patients. So there's a huge resource saving if we don't investigate those patients in that way. There's more guidance to be had in the size of the paraprotein because a very good study showed that if the 
paraprotein is less than 15 grams, the probability of finding more than 10% plasma cells in the bone marrow is just 4.7%. And the probability of finding bone lesions in those patients is 2.5%. On the other hand, we do feel that both high intermediate and high risk patients should have some important additional investigations. We would recommend that we check their serum LDH and beta 2 microglobulin level, and would also strongly suggest that they undergo whole body imaging. So in the case of an IgM paraprotein, which of course is much more likely to progress to a lymphoproliferative disorder than myeloma, the patient should have a CT scan from their neck to their pelvis. And in terms of the other paraproteins, they should have a whole body low dose CT scan, a PET CT scan, or a whole body MRI scan, depending on what's available in the local center. These patients should also undergo a bone marrow aspirate and trephine biopsy with, an, with a sample being sent for fish cytogenetics. If it hasn't already been done, they should have their urine protein to creatinine ratio measured. And we should also check their serum NT pro BNP level. These latter two tests are very good for picking up early AL amyloidosis. So moving on to the follow-up of patients. Um, the whole rationale for following up patients with MGUS is to detect early progression or towards either myeloma or a lymphoproliferative malignancy. There's never been a randomized controlled trial that shows that follow-up is the right thing to do in this situation. However, we do know that patients who are diagnosed with myeloma who were previously known to have MGUS and followed up with MGUS tend to have a better overall survival. In terms of the frequency of follow-up, various guidelines have suggested various uh, models over the years. We feel that the right thing to do is to repeat all the blood tests that we've been discussing, the blood count, the biochemical profile, and paraprotein and light chain assays, six months after diagnosis, and then annually if those tests are stable. The importance of continuing to follow up is that the risk stratification of a patient can evolve with time. For example, a patient who started at high intermediate risk could move to become a high risk patient. And I think there is something to be said for monitoring high risk patients more often than annually. At the other end of the spectrum, low risk patients need less intensive follow up. And if you diagnose a patient who has a less than five year life expectancy, there is an argument for not following them up at all. This is slightly contentious, and I know Myeloma UK in particular were a little bit uneasy about us making that recommendation, but certainly low intensity follow-up is the right course of action for elderly low-risk patients. In terms of where the follow-up should take place, a variety of models are available. Um, we, in our clinics, uh, tend to suggest that uh, low-risk or low-intermediate-risk patients can be discharged to primary care to have their annual follow-up taking place in that setting. That is, of course, rather controversial at the moment, bearing in mind the high pressure that our GPs are under. Alternatively, there is the hospital follow-up model. And this can be in either nurse-led or consultant-led clinics. And MGUS, I think, suits itself very well to virtual or telephone clinics, uh, a model that, of course, became very prevalent during the COVID pandemic. 
I think it's important that the consultations in these hospital clinics should not just be a review of the numbers. They should include a brief discussion with the patient about any symptoms that may have developed over the course of the previous year uh, with the view to moving forward with more investigations if they are indicated. In terms of warning signs that progression may be taking place, one obvious measure of transformation is a rising paraprotein. And this is particularly the case if we pick up three successive rises. However, it's interesting to note that even by doing that, you only pick up 50% of all patients who progress. And this, uh, I think, reinforces the importance of taking histories, uh, looking for signs, symptoms or signs of progression. For example, pain doesn't just have to be bone pain, anemia, short of, shortness of breath without anemia, nephrotic syndrome, or symptoms of peripheral neuropathy. Any patient in whom there is a suspicion of progression should go on to have whole body imaging and a bone marrow examination. I just wanted to talk briefly about the monoclonal gammopathy of clinical significance or MGCS. MGCS involves the presence of significant organ damage without malignant transformation. The most widely known form of MGCS, I think, is the monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance or MGRS. This deserves a podcast on its own. And indeed, the British Society of Haematology are producing a separate good practice paper which on the, on the subject, which should be uh, published quite soon. Other target organs for MGCS are the skin, the peripheral nerves, and cardiac muscle. If treatment is required, chemotherapy should be used to control the B cell clone that's producing the paraprotein. However, I think it's very important before any decision to treat takes place, the patient should be discussed at a multidisciplinary meeting with suitable subspecialty representation from, for example, dermatologists or neurologists. One important element of the follow-up of MGUS patients that I haven't dealt with yet is the need for good psychological support. Any condition that's managed by watch and wait or active monitoring does raise anxiety levels among patients and watch and wait is often described as watch and worry in that group. I think one of the main reasons that patients get concerned is their uncertainty about the future. They're told that they have a pre-malignant condition that might transform to something very serious, but on the other hand, uh, it may not bother them at all. And it's this uncertainty that can uh, cause problems. And for that reason, I think it's very important that patients do have a full discussion with a clinician at the time of their annual review, so that any anxieties they may have can be picked up on and the patient can hopefully be reassured if their condition is not progressing. All of these topics are dealt with in more detail in the MGUS Good Practice paper that's now available on the BSH website and published in the British Journal of Haematology. So I'd like to just finish now by thanking you all for listening and reminding you that other similar podcasts are available on the guidelines section of the BSH website. Thank you.